crazy days. Maybe you don't have those. I do. It's every day of my life. And Psalm 27 says, if it had not been, I would have lost heart. If it had not been that I knew and I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Anybody alive today? That applies to you today and every day. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. Oh, my days, I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay down my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. I'm known you as a friend, and I. 
Announce. There we go. I was kind of hoping Eric was going to come up here so I could interrupt him when he came up, but he didn't come up, so that's all right. You know, we want to say as elders, I'm going to call all the elders. Come on up, guys. We've, uh, you know, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and we're just going to make a short, quick thing. We don't want to let Bill talk too long. So basically, I'm here to just say how grateful we are to these two men of God that we have. So I'm going to ask Pastor Eric and Pastor Jeff if you would come up here and just stand up in front. And I'm going to turn this over to the head of our elders, Mr. Rupoli. Okay, thank you. Well, good morning, Lighthouse Church. Boy, it's been a long time since we said that. Um, Bill kind of opened it up with October's Pastor Appreciation Month. And um, this is going to be a little different. Normally... You know, we'll stand up here for about 10 minutes or so and just acknowledge each of our pastors and their wives and their family. But because we're live streaming, our time is limited. And, and I don't want to cut into their message. And I don't want to cut into the, to the worship. And by the way, the worship has been absolutely awesome. And I hope you can hear me in the back. So 
with, with that said, I, I'm not going to talk individually about each of them. I, I'm going to just lump them together. Um, and that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean we love you guys. Okay, that doesn't mean we don't love these guys any less. Our church has been so blessed by Pastor Eric and Pastor Jeff. I mean, we have two men that not only can preach the word with authority, but they're shepherds, which means 24-7, you can call either one of these guys and they're there for us, which for those of you who've been around churches, that is unusual. You have one pastor who can preach and another who's the shepherd, but for us to have two pastors that can do both, we're truly blessed. And in this time, this 2020 has been a year for the ages. These two men, our pastors, has held this church together. Not only the messages that he would send out daily through the beginning of this thing were absolutely inspiring and awesome, but everything they've done, they've held this church together. And with that said, not only do we wanna thank Kathy and Jen uh, for sharing their husbands with us and the boys, because it's tough to have a person that's on 24-7. Okay, so we thank you guys so much. And just on behalf of the church, we just want to give you a special gift. But more of a gift that I think that, that we can give them, and I hope all of you are doing it every day, is pray for them. Yeah. And, and so what we're going to do now is I'm just going to have two of the guys, um, Tom and D, if you guys would just pray for our pastors and then we'll end it and get on with the rest of the service. Father God, we, we uh, are so amazingly blessed by these two men that you have, you've called and you've provisioned. And, and Father God, we just ask your continued anointing on their lives. Uh, they're being attacked by many sides, and we, we, we pray for a hedge about them, that you might protect them from these darts, fiery darts that are coming their direction. Father God, we, we just lift them up to you, and we, we bless them today. And we ask that you continue to work through their lives, that your kingdom may be glorified. Mm -hmm. And I pray this in your Father, Father God, in your Son's name. I am back here. It's just that they're... Hi, guys. No, no. <laughs> Uh, for Prince Ali. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. What? Um, I've had the privilege of these men's prayers in touch this year. I came almost home, going home to the Lord, and these guys were right there in prayer for me and lifting my wife and I, and God knows we need it because she was outside the hospital looking up in. And uh, But I want to say that I have never been more proud of two boys, <laughs> and I can say that at my age because they both could be my sons. Uh, than these two guys here. I, I was, we followed Eric here from another church, and we've never regretted that for a moment. And I remember reading at 2 o'clock in the morning this, the things about this guy next to here over Jeff, and I thought, that's the man. And so, because he's come alongside of Eric and has been his other side. Do they always agree? No, they fight like a couple little boys sometimes. But I'm still real proud of them because they kiss and make up, so it's good, you know. <laughs> So I really love these guys, and I know that all of you have grown to do so. So, Father, I just ask that the Holy Spirit fall on these two men, 
we are still not of all this pandemic and the other crazy stuff yet. So just fall on them as they lead us and as we follow them, as they lead us to you. And we always leave here on Sunday wanting to follow Jesus more. So that's the great message that comes. So bless them both. Bless this church, our, our worship, and everything that we have going, all the people behind the scenes. Father, it's yours. We give it to you. We ask that the Holy Spirit fall on this place today, and especially on these two brothers in Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Fight like brothers. You know, they, they say iron sharpens iron, but that creates sparks, right? And that's how it's supposed to be. I'm so grateful for, for my partner in crimes against the enemy. All right. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're going we're gonna to dive right in today because we've got a lot to cover. Let me stick this over here. And, and I just need to say, before we begin... Oh my goodness, it brings me so much joy to get to gather with my family here. Uh, it, it brings me a tremendous amount of joy to even have my family here, as now we have children's ministry meeting across the street, and there's the beginnings of a return to normalcy. It just brings me joy to get to worship alongside of you, uh, with all the technical difficulties that are kind of expected when it comes to family, right? Because we're not perfect. In fact, one of the things that brought me joy this morning, I leaned over to Ethan because he was worshiping with me up front. And I go, buddy, I'm so glad that you're here with me. And, and then he leans over and I go, and, I'm, and he goes, dad, you should probably gargle with Listerine. And I'm like, oh, oh I've missed this so much. Uh, welcome home. Right? That, that, that is my love language, by the way. Uh, so we are, are continuing our journey through the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. It was a church that he considered family, loved them deeply. They, uh, in, in a lot of ways, saw himself as a spiritual father to them. And so his letter is very pastoral in the way that he is encouraging them on how to live in the midst of a world that was caustic to their faith. And one of the things, we've talked a lot about kind of Paul's posture and what Paul is calling him out. And one of the things we haven't mentioned a lot is just how joy-filled this letter is. In fact, this is Paul's most joy-filled letter of all that he writes. In fact, he uses the word joy or rejoice 14 times, which is saying something when you remember the context of this letter. He was writing it from a jail cell, probably in Rome, awaiting a trial that could easily end in his execution and yet he has no problem again and again reminding them to rejoice in the Lord. And as we jump into chapter 3 of Philippians, that's where he starts yet again is to remind them to rejoice. Let's go ahead and begin reading. It says, further, my brothers and my sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write these same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. I've been thinking a lot about what he means by that. It's a safeguard for you. Because it seems that what Paul is suggesting is that the attitude of our hearts, our rejoicing, our choosing to, to have an attitude of rejoicing as opposed to fixating on our circumstances and being overwhelmed by them, is intentional. It'll protect them. But of course, that begs the question, well, safeguard their hearts from what? 
And in order to answer that question, it would be helpful for us to step back just a moment and remind ourselves what was going on in the culture in that day, particularly within the church. Because there was attacks coming at the church from all over the place, some of them from outside. Certainly there was persecution coming from the outside, but there were also attacks coming from the inside. And, the, and one of the primary sources of attack that was coming from the inside was th- from this group of, of people that we know today as the Judaizers. They were Jewish men and women who were Christians. They, they accepted Jesus as their Messiah, but they genuinely believed that in order to take hold of Jesus, you had to take hold of Judaism as a whole. If you wanted a piece of Jesus, you needed to become a Jew. And this isn't going to be in Philippians, but remember back in Acts, because Paul's already had a lot of interaction with these Judaizers. We saw the first interaction that he had, and it was a pretty explosive one, taking place in Acts chapter 15. Let's just go ahead and throw it up on the screen for a moment. We read this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Antioch is where Paul called home. It's where his home church was. It was in a Gentile region. He was one of the the elder pastors of that place. People, these Judaizers, came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught to us by Moses, you cannot be saved. It doesn't matter how strong your faith is unless you take hold of all that is Jewish. And and by the way, why was this so important to them? Why were they fixated on circumcision of all things? It seems a little bit strange, right? Especially because hopefully nobody's seeing that you have been. So what's the point of it for them? The point is that in their mind, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. He was the one that Jews were waiting for centuries to show up. And so if somebody wants to take hold of Jesus, it makes sense that you would take hold of all that Jesus represents. And in their mind, that means that you need to take hold of all of Judaism. And for them, the symbol of taking hold of all of Judaism was wrapped up in this idea of circumcision in the same way that Beyonce said, if you like it, you're going to put a ring on it, right? And that was symbolic of taking all of marriage and wrapping it up in the symbol of a ring. He was saying, or they were saying, if you like Jesus, then you're going to have to get circumcised. You need to become a Jew. Now, in in chapter 15, verse 2, we read that this, their teaching brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with these Judaizers. He had a major, Paul had a major problem with their philosophy. Why? What's the big deal? It's nothing, Paul. I mean, Paul, you yourself were circumcised. Why is this such a big deal? Because for Paul, he recognized that their fixation on circumcision would completely change the whole DNA of the gospel. It completely flipped it on its head. It went from being a gift of grace through faith to being an act of the flesh, of us earning it. And what he recognized they were doing is they were taking the cross and they were ripping it down and they were turning it instead into a ladder. Okay? They were taking the cross and they were saying the cross is insufficient. What we need is we need a ladder that we can use to climb into God's good graces. All of the mothers in this room are about to get uncomfortable, but so be it. Okay? This is for Jesus. So, you want to take hold of Jesus? Great! Get circumcised. 
But we know that that's not where it stops, does it? Because that was just the first step. And if you're going to get circumcised, it means you want to become Jewish. That means you're going to need to begin to obey the Sabbath. Because that's a big deal. Anybody who doesn't obey the Sabbath can't take hold of Jesus. And if you're going to become a Jew, that means that you need to obey all of the dietary customs. And, and if you really want to take hold of Jesus, this not a step is my favorite step, by the way. If you want to take hold of Jesus, then you're going to have to obey all of the rules and the regulations that it means to be Jewish. And this is your life. If you say yes to Jesus, Jeff, you're probably not going to be able to catch me if I fall from back there, and that's okay. This is what they interpreted faith to look like. This is the gospel, is a broken stairway to heaven. And here's what Paul is saying. This doesn't work because this is all about works, guys. You're making it about yourself. You're making it about effort. You're trying to earn it. Bill, don't take, are you trying to earn $10,000 in case I fall? Will you split it at least if I do? All right, then record away. That's fine. You know what I got to say about this type of life of trying to earn it? It's precarious, isn't it? Because you're only as good as the last moment. One false move, one little stumble, one leaning the wrong way, and you go down. All right, I'm going to make my wife and every other mother in here very happy. I'll come on down. Because here's the point of what Paul is saying. You don't have to clap for that. Come on. Have a little faith. What Paul is saying is this doesn't work. It's a broken stairway to heaven. And he, he, he doesn't pull his punches when it comes to talking about it. He says rejoice in the Lord because it will act as a safeguard from the, the empty philosophy of this world that says that you have to earn your salvation through good works. That you have to take hold of Jesus by somehow jumping through the hoops and building this broken stairway to heaven that can never lead you to where you want to get. Save your energy. You know why? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Because he goes on the heels of saying, rejoice, because it'll act as a safeguard. He goes to say, verse 2, watch out for those who would preach this. It's not clear at this point whether the, the Judaizers had made their way to Philippi. But I think that Paul recognized it was just a matter of time. Just a matter of time before they did. They'd already made it to Galatia, another city where Paul had planted a church. He'd already seen the damaging effects of their philosophy there. He'd already seen the way that it led people away from the gospel, caused them to open their palms from the cross and instead take hold of a ladder that they tried to climb into heaven. And so he says in verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. That doesn't seem very loving, does it? I mean, you think that's harsh in our English language? This is gentle compared to the original Greek. It's closer to, look out for those curs, those, those criminals, those cutters. You're like, Paul, chill out. But even that is a huge step back from how he speaks about it in the letter to the Galatians. Because in his letter to the Galatians, he straight up says, man, you, go, you know what, guys? If you're so dead set on circumcising yourself, on jumping through the hoops, then I hope the knife slips and you completely emasculate yourself. 
how do you really feel, right? It's evident to me that Paul didn't have a lot of love for people who would preach this philosophy. In a lot of ways, I, I, I liken it to how I would probably feel as a father to somebody who introduces drugs to my sons. Imagine I caught somebody especially somebody who's older, trying to encourage my sons to try drugs, do you think that I would be generous and gentle and kind and, hey, come on over for dinner? Probably not initially, right? It would, there would be a lot of energy because those, that individual would be putting my son's life at risk. And for Paul, this is even, this is even bigger than drugs, even more potentially damaging than drugs. Because whereas drugs could affect their bodies and ultimately steal their life physically, this empty philosophy that encourages them to say, you have control, you are the masters of your own destiny, you can earn your standing with God, that threatens to steal their eternal life. In fact, he comes straight out in, in the letter to the Galatians. Can we throw that up on the screen for a moment? This is what he says in his letter to the Galatians about why this is such a big deal. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law, by, by the ladder that you climb, you have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away or let go of grace to take hold of human effort. This is no small deal to Paul. This is everything. This is a battle over the heart of the gospel. And for Paul, he's not willing to pull his punches. So watch out for those dogs, for those criminals, for those cutters. Because it's we, we who are the circumcision. Remember, he's talking to Philippian believers, most of whom are Gentile, which means the vast majority of them have never been physically circumcised. So what is he saying? He's saying, guys, we have been set apart. That's what circumcision was. It was a setting apart. We have been set apart by the Holy Spirit, not by an act of human effort. It's we who serve God, not by our flesh and our effort, but through the Holy Spirit. It's we who boast, not in our own abilities and our own resumes. No, we boast in Jesus Christ. It's we who put no confidence in the flesh, right? We don't rely upon our own efforts and our own ladders. And this is where, I'll be right back, because this is where Paul then kind of flips the script on him a little bit. And he says, hey guys, you think you can earn your salvation? You think your ladder is sufficient? Guess what? If anybody, don't worry, I won't step on the not a step in this one. If anybody thinks that they have the ability to stand before God and earn their righteousness, it's me. And then Paul spends several verses explaining why he, his ladder is so much bigger than everybody else's ladder. He says, if anybody thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. You, you talk about circumcision? I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like is set apart for every good Hebrew child. I was born into the people of Israel. I didn't come to be an Israelite later on. I was born into it. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, right? That kingly tribe, the same tribe from which we got our first king, Saul. That's the tribe that I was born into. 
I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You want to talk about being zealous? Or I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. He says, in regards to the law, in regards to somebody who takes the law seriously, I trained as a Pharisee. I'm an expert at the law. I trained under Gamaliel. I'm the man. You want to talk about zeal? I persecuted the church. And in terms of righteousness based on the law, I'm faultless. Now listen, here's what he's not saying. Don't worry, Kathy. Don't worry, Ethan. Don't worry, Jeannie or Darlene. Actually, Darlene, I don't think you're worried about me at all. I'm like, I think that you're like, oh, come on. He is not suggesting when he says in terms of righteousness by law, he's not suggesting for a moment that he's never broken the law. What he is suggesting is the law has put ways to make yourself righteous in place. If you mess up, here's the things you do to atone for it, right? And guess what? I've done that. Every time I've stumbled, I have done all that is required of me. So if anybody can point to their ladder and say, I have arrived, it's Paul. And yet, Paul is the first to say that this ladder does not help him get any closer to heaven than that ladder does, or any ladder for that matter. It doesn't matter how good I am. It doesn't matter how hard I try. It doesn't matter how high I climb. I could build a ladder with so many rungs that I'd have to blow a hole in this roof and it would still get me no closer to heaven than when I'm standing flat on that ground, completely overcome by the brokenness of my own life and my own choices. No different. So if anyone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. But, verse 7, Whatever were gains to me, whatever were the things that I could point to, to my resume, whatever was a gain to me, I now consider a total loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything I could ever possibly do a loss because of the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider all of my efforts garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, from my efforts, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Again and again and again, in case we haven't gotten this yet, Paul points us back to the cross and says that, that is the ground I stand on, not this shaky foundation that is my human effort. He says, I'll tell you what, it's not comfortable to sit up here. It's precarious. I'm going to get down, okay, in Jesus' name. This is no way, let's all breathe for a second. This is how the world says we are defined. Put lots of words on it. Success, achievements, your resume, how many likes you get on a post, how many friends you have, how much you make, what you drive, what you wear, how you look, how people think you act, how good you are at something. We start comparing ourselves to other people. That's how we define ourselves. How am I doing with God? Well, my ladder's bigger than their, their ladder. I'm pretty good. 
Remember, we are never judged by the size of our ladder. You know, you know who we're, we're never judged by our neighbor. We're never judged by somebody else's faith. Hey, how is, my, how is my walk compared to Jeff's walk or compared to Rich's walk or compared to Diane's walk? I don't want to compare myself to Diane's walk, right? Who are we judged against? We're judged against God's righteous standard, and on that standard, we all fall woefully short. And Paul again and again and again points back to the cross and says that, not your ladder, is what defines you. And in fact, you want to get closer to God? It's not by climbing a ladder. It's getting down on your knees and just saying, thank you, God, for loving me. Right? Thank you for giving your life for me that I am defined not by what I have done, but by what you have done. That's the standing for all of us. Paul continues, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. Not just in knowing about him, not in the intellectual sense. I want to know him in a relational sense. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. And so somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul's going to turn a corner here, and it's going to feel like an abrupt shift. He's going to say, not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I keep pressing on to take hold of that, which Christ Jesus already took hold of for me. And in case we didn't hear him the first time, Paul decides to repeat himself, almost verbatim. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. What is it? Knowing Christ, knowing the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I haven't arrived yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, even the good stuff, and straining towards what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What on earth is Paul saying here? I think that in a lot of ways, Paul is recognizing that he has placed such an emphasis on you can't earn your salvation. You can't earn your standing with God. That he wants to, he wants to protect them from going to too far in the opposite direction. In the opposite direction lies cheap grace. Where we say, you know what? Jesus paid it all, so there is nothing required of me. And that grace that both saves us also puts us into a state of complacency, a spiritual lethargy where we don't try. And in that we too can miss the heart of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because Paul recognizes that he did not, he does not expect us to earn our standing with God, but he also doesn't want us to live complacent lives. And I will tell you as a pastor, I see people today in our church, in all over the place, who fall into one of two extremes. On the one hand, they say, I got to earn it. I gotta, I, I'm a good person. 
That's my standing with God is I've got to do enough. I've got to earn enough. And sometimes when we say Jesus loves you, they go, no, he couldn't possibly love me because I know how much I've screwed up. And so they resist the gospel because they don't feel like their ladder is sufficient. But on the opposite extreme, I also see people who are Christ followers in name only. Far too many people who pay lip service to following Jesus, but their lives declare something else. They're not following at all. I know Jesus. I know about him. But I'm not choosing to follow him. He's my savior. But I haven't allowed him to be the Lord of my life. And Jesus had, had some really had a very sobering thing to say to people who followed him because of what he could give them. Followed him because of the way he, had a, he was a compelling teacher. Followed him because they saw him do some miraculous signs. They're like, dude, this, is, this guy is the man. But they had no interest in being shaped by their proximity to him. This is what he said in Matthew chapter. Can we, can we throw it up there? He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only those who do the will of my Father. Keep going. He says, many will say to me on that day, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Didn't we do lots of stuff for you? And then Jesus will say to them, I never knew Paul recognizes that there is a danger to simply paying lip service to Jesus. No, I can't earn my way into heaven, but Jesus did everything, so there's nothing required of me. And so I'm just going to sit back and live my life as if I am still the captain of my own ship. Thank you, Jesus, for buying me life, or, you know, life insurance, fire insurance, whatever kind of insurance you want. Thanks for stamping my ticket to heaven. I'll take it from here. And what Paul is suggesting to us, that the gospel is not a ladder that you have to put together to climb into God's good graces, but the gospel is also not simply a contract that you sign one time through a one-off prayer and then go, go on living any way that you want, irrespective of him. What Paul is suggesting to them and to us is that the gospel is an invitation to relationship. The gospel is an invitation to relationship. Jesus put it this way. Follow me. Do life with me. Learn from me. Be shaped by our proximity to one another. Start to emulate the things that you see in me. Lean on me when you stumble. I've been thinking a lot about how do, how do you illustrate that kind of relationship when we are so enamored with the ladders of, of personal effort or, or we put so much emphasis on grace and yes, we are saved by grace alone. We cannot earn it. But then what? Because when we just focus on grace, it's like we turn the gospel into the finish line. And Paul wants us to avoid that as well. And so I was thinking, what is a metaphor that helps us understand it? And the best metaphor I can give you is my marriage to my wife. 16 years ago, I stood before my family and my friends, 
and I covenanted with that woman that I was no longer my own. I was giving my heart to her that we would be united for the rest of our lives. And on that day, I put on a ring. And this ring, or one like it, has, has been with me pretty much every step of the last 16 years. I never take it off unless I'm going body surfing because then I, my, my fingers shrivel and I don't want it to slip off. And there was that one week when I lost it and I had to buy a new one and waiting for it to arrive and all that kind of stuff, right? But she liked it, so she put a ring on. I'm sorry. No, but let, let, just for a moment, let's consider this for a second. Consider for a moment, does this ring make me married? Is this it, right? Because if this, is the, if this ring makes me married, that when I lost it for that week, Come on, baby. Oh, man, I had too much salt for breakfast. When, we, you know, when this ring comes off, whether it's because I'm going body surfing or I lose it, I don't cease to be married. And in the same way, Paul is saying circumcision or uncircumcision means nothing. Baptism or not baptism does not make you saved. Yes, it's an external declaration to the world that I belong to another. I'm no longer my own. I have been bought at a price. I identify as this kind of a person. For the Jews, I identify as a Jew. For a Christ follower who gets baptized, I identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. There is a powerful purpose for baptism. In the same way, there is a powerful symbolism from my ring that I wear every day, sleeping or awake. But this ring does not make me married. The covenant I made with my wife does. And Paul is simply reminding them, you are not saved by external acts. You're not saved by your efforts, regardless of how good you are. Couldn't possibly save you. You are saved by grace through faith. But on the flip side, and this is where he gets at the very end of this conversation, he says, but I'm not going to rest in that as if I've somehow crossed the finish line because I put my faith in Jesus, right? Imagine if on the day that I married Kathy, after we exchanged our I do's and our vows and we had our first dance and we shoved cake in one another's face, I'm leaning over to her as we're watching everybody else kind of trickling out of the place, and I lean over and I say, I'm so excited for our honeymoon. This is going to be great. You know, I've been thinking, though, when we get back, I'd really like to keep living on my own because, quite honestly, it's way more comfortable that way. Then I can sleep with the windows open and the light on. I can read as late as I want without waking you up and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know what? I'd really like to keep my bank account separate from yours so that I can kind of do with my money what I want to do with my money. And, and as I think about it, I really don't want you to have any say in what I do I'd really like to just be kind of be autonomous. And, and you know what that includes? Like, if I get to hankering to date somebody, I, I, I know you'd be cool with that, right, honey? Honey, Kathy, where are you going, right? Like, in that moment, would you, would you think that I have any concept of what it means to be married? No. And Paul is saying, guys, our faith, our Embracing of Jesus is not a momentary decision. It is a decision we make moment by moment, day by day. And now I want to be cautious here because I do not want to suggest to you that if you 
wake up in the morning and, and you don't have time to do quiet time or you forget to pray at a meal or you don't make it to church on Sunday and you don't even watch it online later, that you somehow cease to be connected with Jesus, that you're no longer a disciple of his. I'm not suggesting that at all. What I am suggesting is that if I never spoke with my wife, never acknowledged her presence and lived like I was single, I would have a very anemic relationship with her, wouldn't I? And Paul is trying to help them avoid an anemic relationship with their creator and with their sustainer. Don't live as if you're single. Don't live like the rest of the world does. Do not take your faith for granted, but continue to work out your salvation with a reverential fear, with a reverential respect that he is God and you are not. So you order your life around him rather than demanding that he order creation and circumstances to suit your desires. And then he kind of puts the exclamation mark on this as he's writing in verse 15, he says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. You can't earn it, but you can't just rest on what's already true of you. You need to work out your salvation. You need to keep pressing forward. You need to keep cultivating your relationship with him. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let's live up to what we've already attained. Don't turn back to how you used to live. Don't go back to the broken stairways to heaven that the world says that you need to do. Don't think that you are saved through your effort. You can't. Don't go back to living like a bachelor. You're no longer your own. You were bought at a price. So honor God in everything. Follow him. And that's the... There are some of you that are, are either here this morning or are listening online that for you, you've been holding God at arm's length. You may have heard about the, the, the gospel that Jesus gave everything so that you could have a relationship with him, that he's inviting you into a, a loving relationship. But perhaps you've been holding him at arm's length because for you, this ladder is laughable because you know that that ladder does not represent how you've been living. It's not a ladder you've been building. It's a pit that you have been digging with your choices. And you go, a ladder is the last thing I would ever use to describe how I've lived. I don't deserve Jesus. To which I would say, you're absolutely right. But the reason the gospel is so stinking good, it's good news for everybody, is that regardless of whether you've been spending your life building a ladder or digging a pit, we all are closest to God when we are on level ground. And the level ground is the gospel. And we get down on our knees and say, Jesus, I need you. I've come to the end of myself. I'm exhausted from climbing or I am exhausted from digging. And I just need you. That's when we're closest to him. We all have a level playing field. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter the level of your education or your affluence. We cannot save ourselves, and we don't have to save ourselves. And he loves us enough that he has done everything that needs to be done to give us the ability to come home. We prodigals can come back to the Father who loves us. We need simply accept his invitation. And if that's you, if you've been holding him at arm's length, or you've feel, been feeling less than, may I just implore you 
as somebody who has tasted and seen how good God is and how gracious he is with very hard-headed people who stumble every step of the way of trying to follow him. He loves you. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Just say thank you for the gift and embrace it. But my guess is I'm speaking even more to a room full of people who may have gone the other way, who may have said yes to Jesus, but you have not been taking your relationship with him all that seriously. If anything, yes, I'm saved by grace. Now I'm going to do lots of things to show my gratitude to him. Now I'm going to kind of live however I want to live. And as you look at the fruit that your life is producing, you wouldn't see things like love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, you wouldn't see those kind of fruits being born out of your life. The things that are coming up are fear and anger, divisiveness, condemnation towards people who think differently than you. And this morning, may I simply remind you that when you say yes to Jesus, You're not saying yes to him for a moment. It's an invitation to a journey. And that prayer that you prayed was not the finish line. It was the starting line to a lifetime of leaning in and following him imperfectly, okay? We will all follow him imperfectly. But the more we allow him to shape the way that we live, the more we cry out to him in the morning, it's as simple as just as you're laying in bed going, good morning, acknowledging his presence. He's there with you. It's as simple as when you walk out of this place, acknowledging he goes with you. You don't have to come into this building to be close to Jesus. He's with you everywhere you go. He's with you when you're at work. He's with you when you're at school. He's with you even when you're driving in traffic. He might be embarrassed about the way you're acting, but he's still with you. So may you, my brothers and my sisters, and I'm speaking to me too, may we be the kind of people who don't rest on our efforts and don't rest on what is already true of us, but we rest in our relationship with him. We take each step of each day, inviting him to have his way in us, to give us the eyes to see our world through a fresh perspective, to see this election through a fresh perspective, to see this this coronavirus and all the fun stuff that's gone with it through a fresh perspective, to see our neighbors or even our own in-laws and family members through a fresh perspective, through his eyes. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we need you, and we thank you that you don't demand perfection, but rather you make perfection available to us. Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice you made so that we could be called your sons and your daughters. Thank you that you use imperfect vessels like us to reflect your heart into this broken, sin-scarred world because, oh my goodness, do we need it. We need your grace. We know that we won't perfectly represent you, but would you, Holy Spirit, fill us up 
would you help us to begin to recognize in ourselves the ways that we've been relying on our own efforts or the ways that we have been simply taking our relationship with you for granted? May we hunger and thirst for connection with you. Because I'm convinced that as we spend time with you, we'll be shaped in your image and we'll become a better reflection of your heart into this community around us. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together. When peace like a river attendeth my way When sorrows like sea billows
every chain, right? Every chain. You know, it's fun as we worship in response. It's fun to just go, Holy Spirit, what is it that you want to say to us today? And the thing I keep coming back to is that if you truly have said yes to Jesus, then when you walk out of here today, you don't leave him here. He's going with you. And, and, and our world would say, you know, and for some of us who have been married and haven't been doing a great job of dating our spouse through this whole coronavirus time, you might feel guilty, perhaps, that you have not been intentional enough in your relationship with Jesus. That's not what I hope you carry with you. He's incredibly gracious. He just wants to do life with you. He wants to glorify the Father through you and with you. He's not going to expect you to do it on your own. You have the Holy Spirit in you. If you have said yes to him, you are no longer defined by what you've done, good or bad. You're his child and you're his spouse in a strange way. So now go as the church to be the church, knowing that you don't go alone. And celebrate the fact that he loves you more than you will ever possibly fathom. If you need prayer for any reason, I just, I just feel compelled. If you need prayer today, myself, the elders, they're already up here, Jeff's in back, we would love to have the opportunity to pray with you. If you made a decision today, don't keep that to yourself. Share it with somebody that you trust. Come and share it with us. We want to pray for you because we have an enemy who the moment you walk out those doors is going to begin whispering shame and accusation going to begin picking away at the joy that you carry in your heart. He's going to begin telling you, you got to try harder now, because that's what the world has told us. That's the message we have been fed a steady diet of throughout our life. You don't have to try harder. You are his child. He loves you. You are united in Christ. Now go in his power and represent your father. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.